1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. Along with more cases of COVID-19, we are unfortunately seeing the spread of the virus of ageism. We know nursing homes are the most vulnerable to outbreaks and the most serious and fatal outbreak in the province is at the Pinecrest Nursing Home in Bob Cajun. Given the emergency, the Ford PCs at Queen's Park have loosened the regulations governing long-term care homes to allow them to get help from people without the usual qualifications. Some say this is a massive mistake, while others say it's a necessary evil given the pandemic. And some older Canadians are expressing concerns their health care will be rationed based on age. Our Zoomer squad joined Libby Zneimer on Monday to talk about these issues. Peter Muggridge, senior editor at Zoomer magazine. David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media.
2: And Marissa Lennox, chief policy officer at CARP. It's really disappointing that the government has moved in this direction. But frankly, what's more disappointing is the fact that we're here in the first place. The Ontario government has done a good job of getting its house in order. I mean, they prided themselves on it. They campaigned on it. That was so important to them. And I heard actually the finance minister not too long ago, just a few days ago, frankly, talk about, well, you know, the reason we got our house in order was so that we could uh, respond quickly and efficiently to a crisis like this. Of course, that makes a whole lot of sense. For years, Libby, CARP has been talking has been screaming from the rooftops our long-term care homes are not equipped to address the needs of residents today let alone in a pandemic and here we are and the result is they're sending unqualified people into long-term care homes to try and meet their needs we have to remember these are people with serious and complex conditions choking hazards are a problem um Many people uh, are uh, are immobile. Uh, you know, there are f- f- people are prone to falls. Are these people going to be equipped to meet their needs if they have had no training? I'm deeply concerned. David,
3: what's your take on this? I mean, this is a situation, frankly, that didn't develop from this government. It's a long-standing situation. The government has said, yes, we know, and we are trying to fix it, but it's not going to happen that quickly. So
4: what's your view on this? Well, I share Marissa's view that it's uh, fraught with danger at best. But my question is, what does help mean? Are you sending in someone who, who's manning the uh, uh, reception desk so that a better qualified person can move off the reception desk and help out in the kitchen? Or are you willy-nilly putting anybody in there to do anything that's needed, including uh, quasi-medical services? And I think this goes to the issue Marissa raised that there hasn't seemed to be a, a holistic approach to the staffing needs and the and the, uh Assistance needs and the levels of the levels of training that are needed. If you look at the stories about the Bob Cage in nursing home and um, all the deaths there, and you read and you read the stories and the quotes from doctors, administrators, people in the home, it just seems to be so helter skelter between people who are trained to give. Medical assistants, people are trained to do quasi-medical assistance, people are not trained at all. Everybody's weighing in and commenting. Everybody's panicking. It just seemed to be a complete mess. And I think that's really the issue that we've got to uh, come to terms with. And I, I guess during the crisis, is a hard time to do that. But certainly we hope that afterwards, there's going to take a real hard look at this whole sector.
3: Peter, and one of the things that baffles me is that it's my understanding that people who had private Personal support workers coming in to spend time with their loved ones. Those people have been uh, thrown out of nursing homes. It's been closed to visitors, and suddenly it's being open to volunteers. It just doesn't make sense to me, Peter.
5: Yeah, it, it's it seems like it's a situation
6: of complete chaos. But um, you know, in in that uh, particular long term care home, I think thirty over thirty um, members of the staff have been infected 34. too so uh, i mean you know i i understand wh- where carp is coming from on this but they need bodies in there to feed the patients and to get them to bed and to you know wheel them around and they need someone in there and and if there are no more psws available i think you know it, it's like when troops go down you have to bring in a fresh new troop fresh new uh, batch of troops even if they're untrained they have to go in there and and uh so responding to a crisis like Bob Cajun, you know, demands desperate measures.
2: carve's position is basically that long-term care has always been an afterthought. It's frankly ageist on the part of the government. They've never addressed the needs of residents in long-term care. And here we are. We're in a situation where, of course, there's going to be even greater staffing shortages in the middle of a pandemic. Some people may fall sick. Some people may have vulnerabilities that... That prevent them from coming into work. And so then you have these homes where they're completely short-staffed and which is the lesser of two evils. I'm just frustrated that we're in this position in the first place.
1: Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. And David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, our Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On the same theme, Dr. Sandy Buckman, president of the Canadian Medical Association, also joined Libby on Monday to clarify comments he made to the CBC a couple of weeks ago.
6: Ultimately, it's going to come up to the doctors to say who can most benefit from, say, being ventilated. And uh, it's going to be based likely on what the potential outcomes. So. A 65-year-old who has led his or her life and is full will likely not be ventilated compared to a 35-year-old with three young children.
1: Dr. Buckman was talking about the situation in Italy where there is a shortage of life-saving equipment and doctors have had to choose who gets it. We here in Canada have been warned that may happen in this country. Dr. Buckman came on Fight Back to offer an explanation.
6: This isn't about age at all and... Uh, decisions regarding the future care about patients if we if we encounter a situation such as they're experiencing now in Italy um, is never going to be here about age i'm 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 part of that group uh, i'm sixty five my wife is sixty five i'm the primary caregiver to frail elderly parents and with my wife to her elderly dad and and I think we're we're all scared that age could be considered a criteria, and it won't be. We understand what it's like uh, as older people to be in this situation. It's frightening, and that something like this would occur. What uh- we're trying to illustrate through those comments is that, um, is that if we aren't able to flatten the curve, and that is reduce the... The, the incidence of COVID cases, in other words, spread them out over time so that the healthcare system does have the capacity to care for all patients that come in, then physicians are faced with these kind of difficult decisions. These decisions aren't, um, aren't new to us. They are made all the time as that who can benefit the most from aggressive care, say, in an intensive care unit or with the use of a ventilator. These are not new. What is new is that there might be a surge in cases forcing very hard decisions. And, um, of course, that is, as I mentioned, it's frightening for all of us. But we're not there yet. And I think the way um, I'm seeing... uh, the way ethics committees are coming out around the world, like the World Health Organization, for example, they are talking about preparing groups of physicians, ethicists, et cetera, to look at all situations. Who is most likely to benefit from this? But it will not be on age. You know, you can get a healthy, vibrant 85-year-old who might do very, very well. All we know is that older people are at more risk of this of the effects of this disease so that, hence, we have to do everything that we can to protect uh, uh, older Canadians.
3: So, so let me ask you this. Why did you use the example of a, a 65-year-old who's lived their life? Uh, that's not even old anymore. The mayor is 65, if not 66. You're the head of the Medical Association. You're 65. I know many 65-year-olds who are more fit
6: than 40-year-olds. Exactly.
3: So why mm-hmm. did you use that example?
6: think it was just to to illustrate that there was decision-making that had to be made. It was not uh, to say that a 65-year-old would be excluded because he or she was 65. It was just an example that hard decisions would have to be made. And it was uh, kind of just how it came out. But again, and that's why I'm so I'm so pleased to be able to clarify it, that it's really based on an, a person's overall conditions. Like I mentioned, the healthy 85-year-old is going to be considered. Older people do suffer from um, many other conditions. We live longer, but we live with many conditions. And ha- and how uh, a person will do getting the aggressive care is going to be the considerations. That doctors and these committees may be forced to make, but it's not going to be about age itself. Uh, w- w-
3: would you like to uh, apologize for that comment?
6: Well, I am sorry. Yes, that um, that that example of using uh, a person who's sixty-five was was taken in the way it was because it was never ever meant to suggest that age would be a factor. Uh, Many people did not interpret it that way, but I can certainly see how people could interpret it that way and would be frightened by a comment like that.
1: Dr. Sandy Buckman, President of the Canadian Medical Association. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. While most Canadians work from home or self-isolate at home or both, we're hearing from our leaders on a daily basis. So how are they doing? And are their policies resonating with us? Our crack strategy panel joined Libby by phone on Tuesday to talk about the one and an only topic on our minds these days. While getting their opinions on how the COVID-19 pandemic is being handled by Prime Minister Trudeau, Premier Ford, and Mayor Tory, Libby also asked Charles Bird, John Capabianco, and Karen Stintz how they're doing personally. And since Karen is the CEO of Variety Village, how her organization will benefit from the new federal wage subsidy program.
7: It definitely will help us out because uh, although we're not considered a small business, we are a charity and a in charitable sector benefits from the wage subsidy. So we are, as the details uh, unfold, then we're, we're going to take a look at it and see uh, what it means for us. I mean, there's a couple of things that I think are good for our organization. One is that they, that they are extending it to uh, the middle of April as opposed to, you know, the end of May. I think it's helpful for us to at least plan and, and retain staff. Um, also, I understand the school year might be not open until May or not resume until May. But just the fact that they're even talking about resuming the school year is uh, is good news for you know a new normal that we're going to have to eventually adjust to, uh, because the the that this permanent state of shutdown is it, it, it creates a, um, an immense amount of unease within you know our sector, within the community, and within uh, you know at large. Like, how long can this go on for? It, you know, again, the strategy that the government has employed is that everybody needs to stay home until we can find out who has who is potentially, you know, at, at risk of infecting others. But, you know, at, at some point, we, we need to figure out a, a, another way to identify those that are at risk as opposed to keeping everybody at home.
3: Uh, John, how are you making out and how do you think uh, the, the government is doing with these measures and with their communication?
5: Well, you know, week three of working from home and, uh, certainly getting accustomed to it. I, um, I think like a lot of folks who, uh, were used to going into their offices and dealing with, with issues, um, from their offices, you know, they weren't unsure how, how it was going to be for working from home. But I think it's certainly selling, selling in, um, and a lot of people are getting used to, uh, used to that. So, you know, I think from that perspective, um, uh, that's a positive, but from a government's perspective, I think you know the governments continue at all levels to do a, a really good job and 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 you know getting the message out uh, you know and that's that fine balance that we've talked about before, Libby, which is to which is to say that you know any leader of any sort of uh, of any government, be it federal, municipal, or provincial, needs to ensure that you know there's not a uh, they don't incite a crisis or or a mass you know um, uh, issue with with their uh, with their respective constituents, um, yet still maintaining uh, transparency and 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 the truth about what the issue is and how dire it is. So there is that fine balance, and I think we've seen you know the prime minister do that. Certainly, our premier uh, Doug Ford has been doing that, and and John Tory, our mayor, has uh, has been doing that. Uh, and they're and they're also, I think, quite importantly, not tripping over each other. Uh, there seems to be a good coordination of communication at all three levels, so that you're not sort of hearing or you know one pointing the finger at the other they're all working together they're all sort of seeming to be to be talking about the same thing but also sticking within their lane of jurisdiction and we're seeing that in the polls in fact you know we're seeing that that certainly week by week the uh, the polls increase uh, certainly at the provincial level uh the premier's gone you know into the 70 range from from the high 60s, uh, and at the federal range, we're seeing, you know, the prime minister still below the provincial uh, numbers, but still, you know, increasing his his popularity. I think he did suffer a bit of a hit uh, last week or the week before with uh, with respect to that, that ill-advised uh, clause within that bill that was going to give him extra powers. But I think he's rebounded and, and is focusing back on what he needs to. So I think overall, the leaders have been doing pretty good. Charles? You know, I think the elephant in the room at the moment has a lot to
8: that in Canada so far we have had less than hundred deaths, whereas in the United States they've had more than thirty-three hundred deaths. And so when you sort of equalize for population, given that Canada's, uh, or rather the U.S. is eight or nine times larger than Canada in terms of population, that suggests that they're they're having a much much harder time of it. And that suggests one of two possibilities: either social distancing has taken hold in Canada to a far greater extent and that we may, may have uh, sidestepped the brunt of this thing, or that we're simply behind where major US jurisdictions are or sub-jurisdictions are. Uh, In terms of how our politicians are doing, they're doing fine. I I think uh, the Prime Minister, the Premier, the Mayor of Toronto have been out there on a daily basis communicating, empathizing, I will say I think Premier Ford has been particularly strong. You know, his press call—he re- he, he clearly is engaged and feeling it, and feels the sense of responsibility. I mean, Justin Trugo has been at this for more than four years, whereas um, Premier Ford has really never faced anything quite like this. So it's, it's something to watch. and But so far, so good.
1: Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst strategy group in Toronto. John Capobianco, senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. And Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Here at Fightback, we've been focusing almost exclusively on overcoming COVID-19. But amid the fight, there are all the other types of health care we need. We have heard of doctors' offices closing and elective surgeries being canceled. And Canadians, especially those over 65, also need eye care. Dr. Joshua Smith is president of the Ontario Association of Optometrists whose patients are primarily in this age group. He joined Libby Snymer on Tuesday to talk about how care has changed, especially urgent care versus routine care because of the pandemic.
9: We've had to suspend routine care under orders from the provincial government uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, we're we want to ensure that we're not uh, contributing to the spread of COVID-19 by having patients uh, filling our, our, uh, our usual schedules and our usual exam rooms. So we've been restricted to providing urgent care and emergency care only. And this is, this is crucial for a couple of reasons. Also because we're trying to help uh, ensure that people with urgent or emergent eye conditions aren't having to face the choice between sitting at home and just hoping it goes away or going to an emergency room where they might be nervous about uh, actually being
6: exposed to the virus.
3: Give me some examples of what emergency care, w- what would cause emergency care?
9: Sure. So anything that uh, you can imagine, like a, a red eye, so something you might think is an eye infection or any kind of symptoms that are, that are sudden. So things like a sudden change in vision or a uh, sudden symptoms like flashes of lights or floaters in the vision, something that's, Certainly, uh, uh, something that comes on all of a sudden, we want those, our, those patients to have access to their optometrist during this time to either get more guidance or actually change their treatment protocol. Or even if they need an update on their medication, certainly for glaucoma patients who are taking medication on a regular basis in the form of eye drops uh, to control their disease.
3: The last time I saw my optometrist, uh, he said you should really be checked every six months as opposed to every year because um, you know one of your eyes maybe is premacular. What about people who need that type of follow-up?
9: That's where we're kind of in a holding pattern right now in the province uh, because those kind of routine care visits are, are suspended uh, by the order of the provincial government. So. Those types of visits, you know, if there's, a, if there's a sudden change or there's something that's new that you're worried about, you should reach out to your optometrist to, to have a consultation by phone or even by video conference. And, you know, if it's, if it's a matter of something that we're going to manage after this sort of pandemic has come down, you're going to see your optometrist coming back and trying to reschedule you know, hundreds and hundreds of people after, uh, that have all been canceled during this time and your, your doctor is going to know best what your risk level is, and they're going to work with you to make sure that you're seen in a timely manner. I know in my practice, we're we're going week by week, and we're contacting every patient that had an exam uh, or a visit booked with us and talking to them about any concerns that they have, talking to them about any follow-ups and what the timeline might be going forward. But it's it's hard right now, of course, because we don't know for sure when we're going to be able to resume seeing uh, our our regular patients in for routine care
3: with the emergency care, would you do that again with a phone call or a video conference or something like that?
9: Yes, yeah, so that's that's the first stage. So there's uh, there's a few stages that we can uh, we can go through if we need to. So the first step certainly is to review the uh, the, the symptoms and talk by phone or or video chat with our patients to, to talk about what their, their symptoms are or what's going on. And if we can actually do, uh, just like if you've had, done this with your family doctor, it would be the same sort of thing. If we can assess the condition and start a treatment or, or, uh, or move forward just through a phone or a video call, then, then that's what we'll do. But if there's something that needs to be seen in person, and there's a real concern of a, of a video, or a, I'm sorry, of a, of a vision-threatening condition, uh, and you need to be seen in person. Um, there are optometrists that have uh, personal protective equipment um, that are seeing patients for urgent care visits and they're following all of these uh, same protocols uh, that we're they're hearing about from hospitals and other healthcare providers to be able to see people in person. And they're still working with their community ophthalmologists, as Paul, well for those that need uh, even more advanced care uh, and need to be seen in person as well. So those are still available but it's certainly much, much more restricted than it was a couple of weeks ago.
3: What would you like to leave us with, Dr. Smith?
9: I'd just like to, to, to sort of reassure everyone that a, their optometrist is going to be there for them if they have an urgent issue in this time. And um, it's really confusing for everybody we know. And if there's any you know, worries about how to, how to access that care, reach out to your optometrist. Go to the association website, the college website, or call uh, the toll-free numbers that you can access them and ask uh, who you can see or, or what you can do about an urgent issue. We, we want to help people either be comfortable at home and stay out of the emergency rooms uh, and not have to worry about their, their vision.
1: Dr. Joshua Smith, President of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Lynn and Peterborough called to talk about the Bob Cajun nursing home where there's been a fatal outbreak of COVID-19. Her daughter-in-law works there and she's been updating us on what's going on, including how many community volunteers are helping out.
7: I know the situation isn't getting any better up there, but they have a lot of volunteers going in there right now at the cost of their own safety to do cleaning, dishes, serving because they can't get professional help in there. Everybody's doing their part up there as much as they can. It seems like the community has come together up there to help them.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Joy in Markham, who phoned to say she's a frontline health care worker and a lot older than 65. You would be
7: shocked to know that I'm currently a PSW. My birthday in May, I'll be 77. I've been on the front line a um, couple of weeks ago, uh, taking temperature and all that. But my main source of work is to help the elderly, especially the Alzheimer's the dementias and all that. So, you know, it's a very challenging job. At age, my age, which, you know, I'm proud of and I'm still able to go out. As a matter of fact, I'm getting ready right now to go to my job. Here I am still standing and is able to give of myself to those who cannot help themselves. And I'm prepared to fight this COVID. I guarantee a lot of nursing homes would love to have me
1: on their staff. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of The Best of Fightback.
0: The Best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer.